So it's fun to be back here at uh, South. It's been a little while, and, and thank you for checking on me. Um, I walked in, a lot of people said, so, you know, how are you feeling? I want to say, I feel great. I feel, feel really, really uh, good in case, uh, I know there are always new families here and uh, new students coming in. Uh, in case you didn't know, last year, like about exactly this time, I had thyroid cancer, had my thyroid removed, and uh, initially I did not feel good because uh, thyroid hormone is like absolutely critical for your metabolism, and uh, they didn't give me quite enough. They served me kind of on a low dosage, so I'm kind of, I'm just kind of dragging a little bit, not feeling super energetic. And one of the ways I knew that I wasn't quite right physically is um, I was sitting in my office and I had a heater at my feet and a down coat on and I was just shivering. I'm like bone cold. And, uh, you know, I was raised in the North. Like I love cold weather, but I was just like bone cold. I couldn't get warm. And my wife was like, yeah, now you know how it feels, right? I'm just cold all the time. I'm never cold. I'm just like, ah, I'm just freezing and freezing. So uh, I saw my doctor and I said, yeah, something's not right. So she raised my level once, raised it a second time, raised it a third time, kept bumping it up. And at one point, uh, I was, I was uh, meeting with her in her office, and I, I said, uh, Dr. Tosani, I understand you know, that you, you set a normal range, right? And it's based on, on averages. It's a whole bunch of people. But you need to understand something. I run hot, right? I'm like, I put me at the, the high end. Don't put me down here at the low. Don't put me in the middle. I run hot. I got lots of energy. And so, okay, so she keeps bumping it up on me and bumping it up. And then finally she goes, Brian, you need to understand, if I give you too much of this, right, you're going to have heart palpitations, right? Your, your heart will, will race. It will get, it'll get out of rhythm. It's called arrhythmia. When your heart is running too slow or it's running too fast or it's skipping a beat, it's called arrhythmia. You're out of rhythm. Now, maybe you can see where I'm going with this. Right? Not, not, not to waste uh, my experience with thyroid cancer and not get an analogy out of it, right? Might as well get an illustration. Sometimes our spiritual heart gets out of rhythm. Right? Our, our physical heart, when it's out of rhythm, it affects our entire lives because life flows from the heart. Right? When spiritually... We're out of rhythm. It affects all of life. And we get out of rhythm spiritually when something other than our love for and worship of Jesus takes center place in our lives. When something crowds out our affection for the Lord and takes priority over that affection, then we are in spiritual arrhythmia. We're out of rhythm. Maybe you've noticed as um, Blake's been taking you through the series on the Pentateuch, uh, talking a lot about the Jews, that there really was nothing very special about them in and of themselves, right? They're described as a stubborn people, literally in Hebrew, stiff-necked. I mean, they're a, they a tough group to lead. They're not a large population. They're not a powerful population. They don't have a great army. Uh, they're not wealthy. They don't even have land at the point that the Pentateuch is written, and the land they're about to receive only grows rocks. I mean, there's really nothing that special about them other than the presence of the Lord, So what he does for them as he rescues them out of Egypt and he's leading them through the wilderness is he gives them a place for worship and a practice of worship. Last week, Pat Coyle talked about the place of worship. It's the tabernacle. And remember where the tabernacle was located? In the center of the population, right? All the tribes pitched their tents around the tabernacle. The tabernacle represented the presence of God in their midst. And when they packed it up, the presence of God went before them and they followed it. And then when the te- tent was pitched, then they surrounded it, right? So it was geographically, physically at the center of their lives. So he gave them a place for worship and then he gave them a practice for worship that would remind them how he chose to be worshiped. 
Right? God said in the, these practices or patterns of worship, he says, this is what I want from you. This is how I choose to be worshipped. I don't, I don't want to be worshipped as you choose to worship me, but as I choose to be worshipped. Now, in my family, from time to time, my wife will bring me uh, a problem. And uh, I'm actually, I'm really, I'm a pretty good listener. But I listen and uh, I ask probing questions and uh, I ask and I make reflective statements, you know, so you're thinking this and you're feeling this, right? I'm really good at listening. Uh, I'm also like an amazing problem solver. So I, I remind her once in a while, you know, God actually made me and put me on earth to solve problems. So, you know, I, I get to my threshold. My, I have a listening threshold, right? And, and, and my wife will push me right to the listening threshold like every time. And I get to the listening threshold and then it's time for me to solve a problem, right? I say, you know, God made me to solve problems. And, it, it, you know, and at that moment in time, I'm reminded of uh, the proverb. Right? There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, it's the way of death. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, that's not how you show love to me. That's not how I choose for you to express love to me. You, you love me by listening to me, not by solving my problems. God has said to his people, this is how I choose to have you express your love to me. Religion is us telling God, this is how we want to worship you. That's the golden calf. Genuine worship is giving to God what he has asked for and what he expects and what he's worthy of. So what God did for Israel is he gave them this this rhythm of worship that would keep love for him at the very center of their lives. So if you're not there already, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and we're going to look at the, the rhythm of worship that the Lord gave to his people. Uh, first of all, he gave them daily worship. So when did your day begin? Uh, For some of you, you're like super overachievers, and like Mike Nugent got up this morning at 5 a.m. and ran five miles already, and they came to church. Others of you uh, got here a bit late, and you had to park at Consol, and I I saw you walking in, right? I mean, (laughs) but your day began this morning. In the Jewish way of reckoning, the day doesn't begin in the the morning it actually begins when the sun goes down. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Right? It doesn't say there was morning and there was evening the first day, but there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day, the third day, the fourth day. In other words, the day started when the sun went down. The sun would go down. Jewish people would gather together around a meal. They would give thanks for God's provision. Then they would go to sleep, and as they slept... God was working so that when they awoke in the morning, they were just entering into the work that God was already doing in the world. So every day they were reminded that they weren't initiating the work. God initiated the work and they entered into his work. They were following him. So there was this daily rhythm and daily reminder to put God at the very center of their lives. Second, there was weekly worship. If you look at Leviticus chapter 23... In verse 3, it says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwellings. That's a reiteration right, of the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. And I'm sure Blake pointed out that this is the one commandment that has the longest explanation. 
In Exodus, it says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why? Because God labored for six days and then he rested. And why did God rest on the seventh day? Because he was just exhausted. It's like, man, I got to have a break. No, he, he did that so that we would have a pattern for life. And so that every time we work and then rest, we remember that God is the creator of all things and he has given creation to us as a gift. It's a provision. Deuteronomy 5, there's a different explanation given. He says to the Jewish people, I want you to work for six days and labor, but then I want you to rest because you're not slaves. You're not a slave anymore. You're free, so, so don't labor like all the nations around you that are frantically working seven days of a week, 365 days of the year. They're working constantly because they're, they're laboring out of fear. But if you trust me, I will provide for you. You take that seventh day and put me back at the very center of your lives. I'll provide for you on the seventh day. Trust me, because I'm a good God. I'm a giving God. I'm not like the gods all around you who just take and take and take. Instead, I choose to give. So there's daily cycle of worship, weekly cycle of worship, and then there was an annual cycle of worship. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, it says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year there were uh, clusters, so to speak, of feasts and festivals. In the spring there were three festivals, and then 50 days later, right at the kind of the beginning of summer, there was a festival. And then as fall was beginning, there were three more festivals, right? A cycle of seven festivals. Uh, it looked something like this. And um, if you want to get all this down, I'll, the slide will be up online later. You don't have to scramble to put this down. But I just kind of wanted to help you visualize what the, the year of worship looked like. All right, so it was Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits all occurred together in the spring. Then 50 days later, Sometime in our calendar around late May was Pentecost. Then you had all the days of summer. And then a cluster of three more festivals, trumpet atonement and booths or tabernacles that happened in the fall. And I want to, I want to walk through each of these because they had both physical significance and reminders, but also spiritual. These were the, the ways annually that God reoriented their hearts and their minds toward worship. So read with me Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first of the month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So, the first festival was a reminder that they were redeemed. Right? Their, their annual worship calendar started with a reminder that they were God's people purchased for him. When the angel of death swept through the land of Egypt, those who believed God put blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house, and so death passed over them, and they were rescued or redeemed out of slavery, out of the death they were experiencing in Egypt, so that now they were God's redeemed people, right? That was the first festival, reminding them who they were as God's people. Second was unleavened bread, verse 6. It says, Then on the fifteenth day of that same month, there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So right after Passover, the next day was unleavened bread, which was a reminder of how quickly God had redeemed them. He'd been listening and he'd been listening and he'd been listening. But when the day of redemption came, there wasn't even time for the bread to rise. God just took his people to himself. 
Now, later they would attach another significance to this festival, which is if we're the redeemed people of God, we should live differently. And leaven came to represent sin that had crept into their lives through the years. So let's go throughout the house and let's be meticulous, right? Let's go into every crack and every crevice. Let's search it out so there's no sin in our lives. That's the second festival. Third is first fruits, verse 9. So then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you, you shall reap its harvest, and then you will bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Right? This is the barley harvest, first grain harvest. It says, I want you to take the first thing that you harvest off the land. I want you to take your first. I want you to take your best. I want you to give it back to me as an offering because it's a reminder to you that I'm the God who provides for you. And it's an expression of, Trust and hope in me that I will continue to give you what you need for life on this land. Right? This, this land will produce for you. If you're following me, I will bring the rains at the right time and in the right amount. I'll bring the sun at the right time and the right amount. The land can produce if you are living lives of worship before me. So give me the first fruits and trust me to give life to you. Right? So that's the first three. Then you had a delay of about 50 days. Uh, And then Pentecost came, verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord, right? So it marks the end of the spring harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest in the summer, but then also later they marked this day as the giving of the law. This is a commemoration when God gave the law to his people. So we had a cluster of three festivals, then 50 days, and then Pentecost, and then you had summer. And, you know, you think summer's rough in Texas. Man, summer is hot in Israel. It's, it's hot, and it's dusty, and it's dry. I went to a, a study for a month in Israel in August, and it was, it's just brutal, right? And this is the time when they're, they're in the fields, and they're pulling up weeds, and they're removing rocks, and they're preparing the field for the fall harvest, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and summer ends, and the fall begins, and it's marked by trumpets. Right? That is God calling his people back to himself, out of the fields and out of labor, and to himself. Chapter 23, and verse 23. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. So trumpets marked the end of the summer, the beginning of the fall, but also God calling his people to himself in repentance. Because in 10 days, they'd have to deal with their sin. But in 10 days would be the day of atonement. So trumpets calls them out of their homes, out of the fields, calls them to Jerusalem so they can deal with their sin on the day of atonement. Verse 26. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth of this seventh month, it is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord. This is the one festival. It's It's a day of fasting, not a day of feasting. One day a year, the people were reminded we have this accumulated debt of sin for the entire year, and we've got to deal with it before the Lord. 
So they would come back to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement and they would begin the process of repentance over those ten days. On the tenth day was the day of fasting before the Lord and confronting the sin in their lives. Now remember, the tabernacle and then later the temple represented heaven. Right? It, was, it was given as a model. Moses is up on the mountain. God says, I'm going to sketch this out for you. This is going to be a model on earth of heaven. That is heaven coming to earth. It's going to be a representation of my presence among you. The Holy of Holies represented the throne room of God. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's throne itself. The lid was where, in a sense, God figuratively would seat. And on that lid, there were cherubim, right? the, the, the angels that guarded the holiness of God. And no one was able to go into the very presence of the Holy of Holies for fear of death. Right? As, as God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. But once a year, God said, I'm going to suspend that if your high priest brings blood with him. And so once a year, the high priest would pull back the veil and would enter into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, with blood. And according to one tradition, uh, they actually would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle just in case he did something wrong and died in the presence of God. No one would have to go in there after him. They could just drag him out, right? And so they actually have found pomegranate bells, one or two that were on the, the, the hem of the priest, and the bells were to show that he was still moving. Right? So we hear the bells, something's still happening there. No bells. We're waiting, we're waiting. All right, drag him out, right? Because he's in the presence of an absolutely just and holy God. But if the priest came in with blood and did things appropriately, he would take that blood and he would cover over the lid. Right? To atone means in Hebrew literally to cover over. It's the Hebrew word kafar, it's a covering. And so you recall from the book of Hebrews, as God is seated on his throne, right, surrounded by the cherubim, he's looking down upon his people, and what does he see inside of the ark? Remember, Hebrews tells us there's three things. Aaron's rod that budded, a jar of manna, and a second copy of the Ten Commandments. So God's sitting on his throne, he's looking down upon his people, and he sees three reminders of his people's sin and rebellion. Aaron's rod reminds him, that the people rebelled against Aaron and Moses' authority as representatives of God. The manna reminds him that even though he had rescued his people, he parted the Red Sea, he provided all that they needed, as soon as there was a testing, they grumbled and they whined and they complained against God. And they said, take us back to Egypt where we had meat, all that we wanted to eat. Forget about the slavery thing, right? We had all that we wanted. Ten Commandments reminded him that as soon as he had given them the Ten Commandments, they immediately broke the first two and they sinned with the golden calf. And all throughout the year, they've been breaking the other Ten Commandments, right? So God looks down from his throne room and he sees reminders of, his sins, of the sins of his people. And so the high priest comes in and what does he do? Well, he smears blood over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So now God looks down and what does he see? He sees blood. But he sees Blood covering over their sins. The only problem is this. The blood would dry out and it would flake and it would be uh, removed. So by the end of the year, the high priest had to go back in and smear more blood over. And every year he had to go in and smear more blood blood over. There was this reminder of the people's sins being postponed and postponed and postponed. But there was also hope, right? Because as soon as the blood was smeared over, they woke up and it was a new day. We have a new year. God has been merciful to us, and we have a new opportunity. So the annual cycle and reminder of worship didn't end with atonement and a day of fasting. It ended with a day of feasting, tabernacles. Read with me in verse 39. 
It says, On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Right, so the year doesn't end on fasting, it ends on feasting. It's a seven-day camping trip. And some of you are like, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, what, how is that at all uh, a celebration? Which, you know, I understand because um, when my wife and I first got married, she had literally had never camped a day in her life. And so, you know, I thought this would be really awesome for my wife to learn to love all the things I love. So I'm going, to take her, I'm going to take her camping. And, you know, being an experienced camper, I didn't plan it. I just threw all my gear in the trunk, right? And we drove to Colorado, and we, we got to Colorado. I'm just driving around, thinking, I'll find a spot. And sure enough, I found a spot. There was this nice flat area uh, up in the mountains. And I pulled all of our gear out, and I w- walked into this clearing. And, and she's helping me, and we're setting it up. And all of a sudden, it's like, like dragons of the sky, mosquitoes. I mean, it's just absolutely enormous. They're just, she's just eating us. They're just eating us, right? Not, not just poking, just devouring us. I'm like, and we're scrambling and trying to set it up. I'm like, okay, this is not going to work at all. We're just absolutely miserable. So got halfway done, had to pack it all up, put it back in the trunk. I go, hey, I'm not discouraged. This is an all, camping's awesome. And we're going to make this work. So I drove a little further and I found this little brook and there was a nice flat spot next to the brook. And you could see people had camped there before. I'm like, okay, this is it's awesome. It's going to work. So I got all our gear out, and I set up our tent, and I put our sleeping bags in there. I got up my little camp stove, and I made her this gourmet freeze-dried shrimp meal. It's like awesome, right? And we're enjoying our meal, and the sun is going down. And as the sun is going down, uh, we hear this, this motor right on the, the road, just a little ways from us. It's just going, going up the road, and, and you know, pretty close. We're not too far off the road. And I, I look out there, and there's one of those tiny little Toyota trucks, Remember those back in the 80s or so? Just tiny little Toyota truck, and it's going up the road, and, and its back end is like sunk all the way down like this. It's going up the road because on the back side of this tiny Toyota truck, turned sideways, is a full-size Chevy truck. <laughs> I'm like, it's like, right? It's just barely going up the hill, just super slow motion. I mean, really, like you could have walked beside it. It's just super slow motion. And there are two dudes driving it, and they've got their windows down. And then these really, 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 I mean, big, like totally, completely overweight, shirt off, hairy, white guys. They turn to us, smile, no teeth, right? Have you ever seen Deliverance, if you're in my generation? <laughs> and I look at my wife, and it's just absolute fear <laughs> covers her face. Like, they're going to come and kill us in our tent tonight, right? I mean, she's so... She slept not at all, and that was our one and only night of camping <laughs> in uh, yeah, 24 years of marriage. It was, you know, a few days ago, or not a few days ago, like a few weeks ago, I was telling her I was going to use that story. She goes, I'll try again. Me and my wife, you know, she's such a good sport. I don't think so. <laughs> it's, it's just not worth it, right? So put that picture out of your mind, right, and think perfect weather and no mosquitoes. Right? In, in Israel at this time of the year, 
It's perfect weather. And it's not raining. There are no mosquitoes. You're with all of your friends and family together. And you have this reminder that when we were going through the desert, God provided for us. And it's a picture not only of the past, but of the future when God will remove all of our enemies from the land. And the land will produce all, all this wonderful abundance for us. It's, it's actually a prefiguring of the kingdom of God. Right? That's the final feast of the year. Right? That's their annual cycle. But wait, there's more. Right? There's even more. There's also sabbatical worship. So he says to his people, I want you to work for six years and then you get a year off. Can you imagine? You're going to work for six years and then on that seventh year, you don't have to plant. Just walk into the fields and harvest. You don't have to labor like the nations around you whose God's take and take and take. I'm going to give to you so much so that all of your animals and your children, your friends, family, everyone will have an abundance without labor on that seventh year Enjoy. There's also generational worship. Every 50 years, what you're going to do is you're going to receive all of your land back. Because what would happen to some Israelites is they would begin to suffer financially and they would have to sell their family property. And so they wouldn't get trapped in this generational cycle of poverty. At the 50th year, all the land went back to its original owners, reminding the people actually that they're not owners, just stewards. God owns all the land and God has provided for his people But then there's also occasional worship, right? Worship is needed or desired because not everything falls on exactly the right day. Sometimes there's just a moment where God has given you a great gift and you just want to go in and celebrate and say, God, thank you. Or maybe a sin crops up in your life and you want to make a sacrifice and say, God, forgive me. That's the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. It's six different kinds of offerings for the things that just pop up in your life. Now let's pause for just a minute. That's probably more Leviticus than any of you have ever read at one sitting, right? Uh, I'm just guessing if I said, hey, who had a quiet time in Leviticus this morning? No hands go up, right? Uh, I have, I've done two sermons in my life, uh, you know, 30 years of preaching, two sermons on Leviticus. We just don't traffic in Leviticus that much. So is there relevance to us? The answer is absolutely yes. Because Leviticus reminds us that life is about worship. Right? All of life is about worship. But when we hear the word worship, we think 20-25 minutes of Trey and Whitney leading us in worship. Or maybe we um, turn on Spotify as we're driving and we listen to a few worship songs. We think that's worship, right? We compartmentalize it. It's a very small portion of our lives. Maybe you guys include, well, Blake's sermons are really worshipful. So I got, I got an hour of worship a week. But all of life is intended by God to be worship. Certainly, right, the fruit of your lips. That's an offering to the Lord. But Paul also says, my work of evangelism and discipleship among the Gentiles, that's an offering to the Lord, right? When I share the gospel, when I build up believers in their faith, when I help churches get established, Paul says, that's like a fragrant aroma going up before the Lord. That's an offering. When we give of our our wealth, we give sacrificially, generously, when we give, uh, as Paul says, hilariously, joyfully. That's like an offering going up before the Lord. Your work is an offering for the Lord. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it all right, for the Lord, right, for his honor, for his glory. Let it be an offering. So whether you're working or playing or whatever you're doing, it's, it's all, in fact, an offering of worship 
to the Lord. So I want to uh, maybe give us an alternative definition of worship, uh, something like this. Worship is anything and everything we do, think, say, or feel with the goal of honoring the Lord. When we are consciously aware that God is the very center of our lives. Uh, there was uh, a monk named Brother Lawrence, a French monk, and his job at the monastery was to work in the kitchen. And at one point he thought, you know, I, I want my work in the kitchen to be just as much an offering of worship to the Lord as when I'm in prayer and reading and meditation and fellowship with the other brothers here. How can I do that? And so he began to consciously try to experience God's presence when he was washing and cooking and cleaning. And so he wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of the Lord. Right? How do I consciously make myself aware in everything? And he made this statement. He said, Think often on God by day, by night, in your business, and even in your diversions. He is, in fact, always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. Be conscious in your times of worship and prayer and praise, but also in your labor, in your home, with your neighbors, when you're sharing the gospel, right? when you're giving. when you're, All of these things are worship. Now, how is this possible? I would argue because worship is, in fact, the goal of history. Everything that God is doing in your life personally and everything that God is doing through the course of history is moving people back toward reconciliation with him so that he would be the very center of their lives. Have you ever noticed that all of the major redemptive events in Christ's life happened on a festival day? Do you ever think about that? When was Jesus crucified? Which festival? Thank you. should be really fresh on your minds, right? Passover. Passover. So what does Paul make explicit? 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Or as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is our Passover, sacrificed on Passover. He is, in fact, our lamb. Right? Where does worship begin for us? With redemption. Right? We're, we're purchased out of death and out of slavery and reconciled to the God of the universe through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Right? So life begins with worship. Jesus was buried on what festival? You took good notes here? Unleavened bread, Right? He was placed into the ground on unleavened bread. So if we read all of 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, it reads like this. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as just in fact you are unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Just see how he ties the two feasts together? This is really, in a sense, what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6. You've been buried with Christ. And if you've been buried with Christ, if you died with Christ, therefore you are dead to sin. You don't actually have to say yes to sin any longer. Therefore, you are unleavened. Live unleavened. Live differently as the people of God. So he's buried, or he's crucified on Passover. He's buried on unleavened bread. He was raised to new life on what festival? All right, I didn't hear it. I'm just going to give it to you. First fruits. First fruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What does first fruits remind us of? Life. God is the provider of life. And now Jesus, he took a breath. So you know that you will take a breath. Even if you die, you will live. First fruits. So Jesus, uh, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. And then what happened next in redemptive history? 40 days 
Jesus was with his disciples, and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then he said, I want you to wait. I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. How long? Well, he didn't tell them, but it was 10 days, right? Because on Pentecost, he gave his spirit. And on Pentecost, he gave his spirit. Formerly, Pentecost reminded the Jews that God had given them the law, which was a really good gift, right? Because it showed them what sin was. But it was an inadequate gift because it, not, it just showed them sin, but it didn't give them power to actually desire to obey. Instead, as Paul would say in Romans 7, yeah, when I got to that last one, thou shalt not covet, I thought, yeah, that's a really good thing. I shouldn't covet. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of all the things I don't have that I want. Right? And it stirred up in him coveting of every kind. So what ended up happening, he said, is the law, which is good, produced death in me. Right? The letter kills But the Spirit gives life. So on the day of Pentecost, God replaced the law through Jesus with the Spirit. Jesus says in John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit of God fell upon the people of God and they testified. Right? Evidence of God's life in them is that they wanted to share life with others. And they testify. Then what happens next? Summer. Again, I was raised in the north. The first summer I was down in Texas, I thought, okay, this is what hell is like. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I was, I was mowing lawns and I was playing tennis. And I'm like, it's 120 degrees. On t- this is just, this is crazy, right? Where I grew up. In, in uh, upstate New York, we, we opened our windows at night in the summer, right? We didn't, we didn't even own an air conditioner when I was growing up. And it was okay. It was amazing. We get out here, it's just it's hot. It's brutal. Right? Summer is next. The long, hot days of laboring in the field, pulling the weeds, removing the rocks, preparing for the fall harvest. Right? It's time of, of harvesting and preparing and harvesting and preparing. It's a really hard time. Church, this is where we live right now. We live in the summer. But because we live in the Bible Belt, we expect it to always be spring. And we're shocked and we're stunned when it's hard and it's difficult and we're ridiculed and we're persecuted. We're stunned. We're shocked. And Peter says to us, why are you surprised at this fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening? Don't you realize that you're living in the summer? And what's your job during the summer? Prepare the fields for harvest, right? Harvest. Harvesting's hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. There's some suffering involved. So uh, Peter's readers, he was responding to one of their concerns because they said, you know, what we really want is for God to set all things right, right? We want all our relationships to be reconciled. We don't want anyone to persecute us. We don't want any famine. We don't want any war. We don't want any conflict with the earth or with one another or with you, God. When are you going to set all things right? It seems like everything is continuing just as it's always been. Where's the promise of his coming that he's going to set all things right? And remember Peter's response? He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing any, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right? God is not slow. God is patient. So get in the fields and labor and work. Church, that's what we do right now. That's our job. And don't be surprised if it's challenging and difficult. And know that summer will end. Right? Summer will end, and it will end with trumpets when God calls his people out of the fields to himself. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed and all things will be set right. Because God's people will be called to himself. We, the church, will be called out of the fields and into the presence of the Lord. But we, the church, are not the only people of God, are we? Uh, There's Israel. And uh, to this point in time, Israel has rejected Jesus as Messiah. So they haven't received atonement yet, have they? So on the day of trumpets, we're told in Isaiah chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 24 that God is going to call his people Israel to a day of atonement. It's described in Zechariah 12, verse 10. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Right, there will come a point in time that the church is called in resurrection to the Lord, and Israel will be called to repentance. And they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. They'll realize, you know, we missed Jesus the first time. We miss the Messiah, and they will have their day of atonement, which will be a better day of atonement, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because in the Old Covenant, the high priest went in one time a year, and he smeared the blood over, but it dried and it flaked, and it had to be covered over again. And it was just a reminder that sins have been, the punishment of sins had been postponed for a year, and postponed for a year, and postponed for a year. The writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus went in as a better high priest. And he didn't go into this copy, right, this this tabernacle or this temple made with hands. Instead, he went into the very throne room of God and not with the blood of bulls or goats. He actually carried in his own blood and the father said, that's enough. That's an adequate sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all times. It is finished. And men and women, that's the gospel message. Jesus Christ made one sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. For the sins of every man and woman and child, of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that's ever lived on the face of the earth to remove that debt. And he will never suffer again because he made that sacrifice. Now, having been raised to new life, he's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. That's the gospel. Believe in that and you have eternal life. And you have hope that there's one more celebration. It's called tabernacles, right? It's a prefiguring of life in the kingdom of God where all things are set Write it once again. So follow me here as I show you this progression. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally in Greek it says the word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us. He, he literally he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle represents what? The presence of God among his people, right? So where was the presence of God among his people? When Jesus was on earth, in Jesus, right? Jesus tabernacled the word, the eternal word of God. God in his fullness became flesh. He pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. But then Jesus departed, and now where is the tabernacle? We sent a spirit, and you are, right? You are the temple of God, because the spirit of God dwells in you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Then Ephesians chapter 2, he says, it's actually not just you individually, but it's us collectively. We also are being built together into a holy dwelling of God through the Spirit, right? So we collectively now represent the presence of God on earth. You individually do. We collectively represent the presence of God on earth. But then one day Jesus is going to return and finally heaven will come to earth and God will dwell among his people 
And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more sorrow, no more death, no more conflict. All things will be reconciled because worship is the goal of history. And God wants to dwell among his people. That's what he's about. That's what he's shaping your life into. That's what he's shaping all of history into. So how do we apply this? Uh, We're going to close in communion in just a moment. So if I can have the servers uh, go to the back. And let me give us uh, just a couple thoughts on application. You know, sometimes our lives get out of rhythm with the Lord. And you know what? They don't get back in rhythm accidentally. Worship is, uh, framing your life around worship requires intentionality. So if I can use one more illustration about my wife. Uh, I, I love my wife. I actually really enjoy my wife a lot. We, we have a lot of fun together. And um, if you were to come to me and say, Brian, I understand, you know, you say you love your wife, but do you ever tell her? She'll already own it. Wow. No. I mean, why? I mean, I told her a while back and nothing's changed. We're good. Why would I keep telling her? I mean, that, that would just get annoying. Okay, you don't tell her you love her. So do you... Like do, you, do you serve her? Do you show her your love through your service? God, no, you know, I really don't do that either because there's not really an act of service that's worthy of my wife, so no, I don't really do that. So, so you, do you bring her gifts or anything? And, oh, no, I, I've never found a gift valuable enough to show her how much I love her. So, I don't, so you don't tell her you love her. You don't serve her. You don't give her gifts. That just really doesn't sound like you, like you love her. Because love is active, like worship is active. You ever notice the vocabulary of worship? In Hebrew, the word worship is literally fall down. Worship is fall down. Lift up our hands, bow your head, bend the knee, right? It's active, right? And for you to put worship at the center of your life, you have to change something. It won't happen passively. You have to actively reorient your life. So my application for you this week is really simple. 30 minutes. I'm just asking you to take 30 minutes and I want you to literally list the activities of your life. So I wake up in the morning and I get a cup of coffee. It's the best way to start my day, right? I start my day, get a cup of coffee. And then uh, I, I read the word and I help the kids get ready for school. I take the kids to school. I, I go to work. I, I check email. Um, I I interact with my coworkers. I come home in the evening or I go to my gym. I work out, right? And we prepare dinner and then we read stories and we go, okay, I want you to think of absolutely every activity of your life and then think, how can I consciously make this moment into an act of worship, right? Every single one. So if I could ask the servers to come forward as they're serving us, um, I want you just to take a few moments and ask God's spirit to speak to you and say, um, Father, through your spirit, tell me, where am I out of rhythm? Where are there things in my heart that have, have taken away my affection? They've displaced my affection for you. All right, so let's just take a few moments and ask the Lord quietly to uh, speak to each of us. And we'll wait till everyone's served and then we'll um, take the elements together. Writer Hebrew says, For by his will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Because he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, This is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Then in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Jesus, thank you for giving your, your body and your blood once and for all, for all sins, for all people, for all time. And I thank you, Father, uh, for giving your son so that he could reorient our entire lives around what gives life, which is uh, our love for you, our worship of you. I pray, Father, that we would listen to the voice of your spirit and, and move out those things that have displaced our affection for you and that once again you would become the very center of our lives.